0: Okay, well, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll begin uh, chapter 6 today. We'll read verses 1 to 8 this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. There it says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from the Lord. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed in its end and it ends up being burned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to lead us and guide us, Lord, into all truth, Lord, and into all righteousness. Lord, knowing that without your spirit and without you guiding us and leading us, Lord, we cannot make any progress in our faith and in our understanding of the truth and of, Lord, your word. But with you, all things are possible. And with your spirit, serving as our guide, we know that we can understand and incorporate into our faith and into our practice, Lord, everything that is written in the prophets and the apostles. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us today. Lord, we want our faith to increase, but Lord, we know that you must increase it. Lord, we want to be sanctified, but we know that you are the one who sanctifies the hearts of men. Lord, we want to grow up into maturity. Lord, to arrive at a state of adulthood in our faith. But Lord, we can only do this if you permit. And so we ask, Lord, what you require of us today that you would also graciously grant. And that, Lord, you might fill us up and, Lord, bring us to that state of maturity. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, today we begin Hebrews chapter 6. And in this first section of Hebrews 6, the apostle gives one of the most clear, poignant, terrifying warnings in the entire book of Hebrews. And we remember that intermixed within the theological teachings of Hebrews concerning the person, the offices, the work of Jesus Christ, there are these many warning passages about the great danger of falling away. In Hebrews 6one to 8 is one such passage, and as we approach it, We must be very careful so that we are rightly dividing the word of truth, right? This is incumbent upon not only the teacher, but also those who are hearing the word of God. We must receive the word of God as accurately handled, right? Not as we want it to be, not in an inaccurate way, but according to the truth. It says in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Now I say this because the passage before us today has been mangled and mishandled over the years to promote many false teachings and ideas. Namely, one of the chief is that a true believer can fall away from his state of salvation, that one can truly possess salvation and lose that state of salvation and come back under a state of condemnation. And the chief passage used by proponents who say that one can lose their salvation is Hebrews chapter six, verses one to eight. And if the Bible only consisted of Hebrews six, one to eight, we might be inclined to agree with this idea. For at the first reading, at a surface reading of this passage, it would appear that this is exactly what the apostle is describing. However, one of the most important principles for rightly interpreting the scriptures is the analogy of faith. And the analogy of faith teaches us That since all scripture is inspired by God, and since God cannot contradict himself, then no passage of scripture can contradict any other passage of scripture. But all scripture must be held in harmony, as a unit, as a whole, and that there is a harmony and unity in the pages of the word of God. We must read scripture as a whole. Each part, each book, each chapter, each verse in perfect harmony with what comes before it and with what comes after it without there being any contradictions. And if any interpretation of a passage contradicts the teaching of another passage, then there's something wrong with that interpretation, right? It is not valid. It must be ruled out and must be rejected. And we have to rethink these things. uh, John 10, 27 to 29 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And John 6, 39 says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Hebrews 6, 1 to 8 must be harmonized with John 10, 27 to 30, and John 6, 39, and many other passages as well. We cannot come to a conclusion that contradicts and puts these passages at odds and in contradiction with one another. So with that in mind, we can proceed with this passage, and it is in the Bible, and it's written there for a reason. So that we can understand it, it's there for our benefit. And with diligent, careful study and accurately dividing the passage, we can grasp its proper meaning and the bearing that it has on the Christian life. This must always be our prayerful aim with any passage of scripture, but especially those that are more difficult to interpret. And so this is how we must proceed. So with that, let's pick up in Hebrews 6 verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Here, this is a continuation of what he began at the end of chapter 5. He told them that he has many things to say to them concerning Christ, but it is hard to explain because they have become dull of hearing. He said that by this time you ought to be teachers, yet you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. He told them that they were in need of milk and not solid food. They needed teaching that was suitable for infants, for babes in Christ, not as those who are mature in their faith. And the reason that they were in this state was because of their own sluggishness. They were not attending to the word of God, to the teaching of the gospel. They were not growing as they should, not understanding the deeper mysteries of the gospel because they were dull of hearing. He could not give them solid food, but only give them milk. Now he's urging them to leave this state of infancy. Right, leave these childish things behind, calling them to leave the elementary teaching about the Christ and press on to maturity. He's calling them to mature in their faith from being infants to being adults who arrive at a greater understanding of their salvation, both in terms of grasping the concepts related to their salvation and in terms of experience, an experiential understanding of salvation as it works itself out in the various aspects of our life. Now, this leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, he cannot mean that we forget these things, that we never talk about them again, or that we don't ever need to be instructed in the basic principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ or that we never need to meditate upon the elementary principles of the oracles of God, or that we never need to hear another sermon about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, about the forgiveness of sins, about the necessity of faith or of repentance. Of course, he cannot mean that we leave these things so that we never talk about them, never think about them, never meditate on them, never hear sermons preached about these central, crucial topics, central to our theology, and a right understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Just as we mentioned last week, just because an adult does not have to drink only milk, right? Just because he has the ability to eat solid food does not mean that the adult never drinks milk. It means that he doesn't drink only milk. He drinks milk, but he also has solid food. And so maturing in the faith, arriving at a state of spiritual adulthood does not mean that we move on from the gospel or that we do not ever benefit from hearing the simple, plain, clear truths concerning salvation that we understood when we first believed. He means it in the sense of learning and understanding more aspects of these precious truths, greater understanding of the central truths of the gospel. There is a greater depth and more mysteries to be unfolded concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we need to build upon the elementary teachings of the Christ, never forgetting these truths, but expanding upon them so that we have a fuller, deeper understanding of the mysteries of the gospel. Again, it's just like a child, right? We teach the child their math tables, But eventually, we want to move on to more complex forms of mathematics, never forgetting or rejecting what we learned in those early years, but building upon these things, advancing them, expanding them so that there is a greater degree of understanding. And so it is in the Christian faith. The new convert must have a sufficient understanding of the gospel. No one can be saved if they don't understand certain basic truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But does someone at their salvation have a perfect understanding of salvation? Do they have a perfect understanding of the gospel and all of the mysteries of salvation? No one has that at the beginning of their salvation. And no one even attains that in the course of their Christian life in this present age. Because none of us ever arrive to perfect maturity in our faith. All of us, in some way, only know in part. Even the most advanced, even the most mature, still have more maturing to do. There's still more growing that needs to be done all throughout the course of our time on this earth. But we are to grow in this way. From being infants in the faith, from being taught those simple, basic truths of the gospel to growing in these things, expanding these things, having a deeper and fuller understanding of these concepts, right? Once the simple, basic truths are grasped, once they are thoroughly incorporated into faith and practice, once someone is settled on these matters, then it is time to press on to maturity, to more truths, to greater understanding and greater depth. And this is his goal for them. This should be the goal of our salvation as well. This is the very purpose of the ministry of the Word of God among us. The reason God gives teachers to teach the Word of God to the people is so that the people would grow from being infants and children to being mature adults in the faith. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. It says, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now notice there, in all of these gifts, these offices that Christ has given to the church, what do they all have in common? What is the focus of the ministry, whether we're dealing with an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, or a teacher? All of them, the the focus of what they do is the teaching and proclaiming of the word of God. All of them are doing this. This is the office. This is what is necessary in every capacity. And what is the purpose of giving them? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There, the purpose of the ministry of the word among us is so that there would be a mature man, so that we would arrive to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine, but that we would be stable in our faith, in our understanding of the truths of the gospel, right? This is what we are to grow into. And this is not uh, just something here for the people, but the apostle includes himself in this, right? That's what he says in Hebrews chapter six. He says, he doesn't say, let you press on. He says, let us press on. All of us are pressing on to maturity. And this is true in the church as well. It is not just the hearers who need to press on to maturity, but also the teachers, right? The ministers, all of us are to be growing in our faith, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All of us must have this goal of pressing on to maturity. Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter three, verses 12 to 16. Here, the apostle Paul speaks of his own growth and his own desire to advance in salvation. And if he needed to advance in salvation, then certainly all of us need to advance as well. Philippians 3 verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. There, the Apostle Paul, his goal was to press on, to go forward, right, to not go backwards, but to keep pressing on in his salvation and in his understanding of these things because he had not attained perfection yet. And none of us in this life will ever attain perfection. Therefore, at all times, we must all press on to maturity. There's never a point in our Christian life in this world where we can say we are sufficiently mature where we can say that we don't need to press on, that we have arrived in the Christian life, though it is true that we can come into a state of maturity and we can be adults in our faith so that we're not like children tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine. However, even those who are most mature, there's still more maturing to do and there's still greater depths of understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here he is urging them in Hebrews 6 verse 1 to press on. He's stirring them up to love and good deeds, right? At this point, they have been sluggish. They're dull of hearing. They're not being diligent to attend to the word of God. And this is because of their own laziness. We remember in Proverbs nineteen twenty four, it says of the sluggard, he buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. And in terms of spiritual things, this is what the Hebrew Christians are behaving like. They're burying their hand in the dish. They're coming to the church. They're hearing the word of God, but they're not putting it into their mouth. They're not digesting it because they have become dull of hearing. They're being sluggish in their Christian life, in their pursuit of spiritual things. They're not pressing on to maturity. So he's trying to excite them, to encourage them, right? To stir them up to love and good deeds, which is a necessary component of the ministry of the word. We are to exhort one another day after day so long as it is called today. And this is a part of the ministry that all of the body is to perform one to another, to meet together for what purpose in Hebrews chapter 10, 24. We are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but we are to meet together for the purpose of stirring one another up to love and good deeds." We are to stimulate one another to pursue these things, and this is necessary because of the flesh. So long as the flesh remains, we remain dull, we remain sluggish, we're lazy. We don't do the things that we ought to do because the flesh seeks to drag us down, to hinder us in our progress in the Christian life. So we need the encouragement of the saints, the mutual encouragement of one another to stimulate us toward love and good deeds. And we always are in need of this stimulation to maturity. There are many people who begin the race. They run well at the first, but then they become weary and quickly they are ready to faint and give up. So we need to encourage one another. We must press on, seeing that there are many blessings, many benefits for us growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are many blessings that accompany maturity in the faith. And if we want those blessings, then we have to mature. We have to grow, and that will never happen without us being diligent to do these things. What are some of these blessings that accompany maturity in the faith? Well, first, as we mature in true knowledge of the gospel, we will have many safeguards to keep us from the errors of unprincipled men. That's what we just read in Ephesians chapter 4. Children are the ones that are tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine. But adults, those who are mature, they have more standing, they have more stability, they have more strength, so that when the wind blows upon them, they're able to stand, they're able to endure and withstand those types of things. Do we want to be tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine? Do we want to be easily deceived by any false teacher, by anyone who proclaims to be a Christian pastor, no matter what he's saying to us? Do we want to come under their deceptions? No, of course not. That's not good for us. Well, if we stay as infants, then we will be more susceptible to various winds of doctrine. But if we reach maturity, we will have more security, more stability in our faith, and the ability to discern between good and evil. Secondly, another benefit of maturity, as we mature in the true knowledge of the gospel, we will also grow in holiness. Understanding the gospel, a true understanding in godliness, holiness, righteous living, these always go hand in hand. It is impossible for someone to grow in godliness without also growing in his faith and in his understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, there is a kind of knowledge that is prideful, a vain pursuit of knowledge, the knowledge that puffs up and does not lead to obedience, doesn't lead to holiness, doesn't lead to godliness, and that must be rejected. But true pursuit of knowledge that is humble, that is sincere, that has this desire to have a better, fuller understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, always with that pursuit will be the accompaniment of more holiness and more godliness. Do we want to be more godly? Do we want to be more faithful to the Lord, more obedient to Christ? Do we want our lives to reflect the gospel more and more in the adornment in which we live? Isn't this what we want as Christians? To bring glory and honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, this comes as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We will grow in godliness as we grow in knowledge. And anyone who says, because this is common today in the churches, that the understanding and study of doctrine is unprofitable. Or many will say it's impractical. It doesn't lead to godliness and it doesn't lead to holiness. This is putting things in opposition that are not in opposition in the Bible. In the Bible, sound doctrine and holy living always go hand in hand. Actually, if you read the Pauline epistles, the epistles of the Apostle Paul, even the one that we're reading now, the book of Hebrews, all of them are written in this way. He first deals with doctrine or sound teaching, and then he deals with the fruit of that, which is godly living. And there's no contradiction between them two, the the two of those. Understanding doctrine is practical, and it does lead to true godliness. Now, of course, there can be the vain pursuit of knowledge for the, for the purpose of puffing oneself up, for pride, right, to think about things that one shouldn't think about, and we should reject that. But a true pursuit of knowledge, to understand the gospel, this is always going to be beneficial to us and will always result in holy living. A third component, a third reason of us to mature in our faith is as we grow in knowledge of the gospel, we become more useful to our fellow man. We are more useful to our families. We're more useful in the church. We're more useful to all men. How can I lead my wife and children to a right understanding of the gospel? How can I bring them to maturity if I'm an infant? How can an infant take care of another infant, right? It, it It doesn't work out well, but an adult has the ability to take care of an infant and bring that infant to a state of maturity. Well, the more I understand the gospel, the more helpful I'm going to be to others. So it is a fulfillment of the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. How can I help my neighbor if I myself am an infant, a child tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine? So these are the reasons why we must press on to maturity. Here in Hebrews chapter six, he says, that we are not to lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Here he says, not laying again a foundation. He's bringing forward another metaphor in order to describe what it looks like to mature in the Christian faith. He's already used the metaphor of the diet of an infant in contrast to the diet of an adult. The infant feeds only on milk, whereas the adult has the ability to digest solid food. Now he introduces this metaphor of a builder. Constructing a building. And he is a miserable, unskilled builder who either does not lay a foundation or who lays a foundation and then makes no further progress in the erecting of the building. And a house will be a sorry shelter in a storm that consists only of a foundation and there is no structure built upon that foundation. What is the whole point of laying the foundation of the house? Is it not to erect the building on top of that foundation? Right. The point of laying the foundation is that the structure might be raised upon it so that something may rest on it and something may be built upon it. And this is the problem with the Hebrew Christians. Because they have become dull of hearing, because they are failing to be settled on these foundational principles of Christian doctrine, then he's having to lay the foundation again. He's not able to move on and build up the building, build up the body of doctrine. He's having to come back and work on the foundation again and settle them on these elementary principles of the oracles of God. He wants to move on to the building, but until the foundation is secured, we cannot move on. The foundation is crucial for two reasons. First, the foundation is laid first. This is the natural ordering of any building. The first component... In the building is the laying of the foundation, and this is true in terms of the faith. The foundation must be secure for someone to even become a Christian, a believer. There must be a sufficient understanding of the elementary teachings of Christ for one to become a Christian. Matthew 16, Matthew 16:13 16, to20. Matthew sixteen thirteen to 20 it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Christ will build his church. And I take this rock to be this confession. This confession of faith that Peter professes, but also all true believers profess. That you are the Christ, the son of the living God. These are the foundations. Right? These are the elementary teachings of the Christ. We must understand that he is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God and that salvation can be found in no one else. And it is upon this foundation that the entire church is built and the entire body of doctrine of the church rests upon a proper understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The second component of the foundation is that it is the thing that bears the weight of the entire building. Whatever we learn, right? Whatever advancement we make in the body of Christian doctrine It all rests upon these foundational principles that all relate to Jesus Christ, right? Christ is the foundation. He is the cornerstone of the church. Personally, Jesus Christ is the foundation, his person and his work. This is the very cornerstone upon which our faith is built. It is our spiritual union with him, with his person that grants us a standing in the household of God. But then in terms of our understanding, or in terms of Christian doctrine, it is those doctrines relating to Jesus Christ. Everything rests upon those things. All of them flow from him. He says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. The entire body of truth rests upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is what we must build upon, a proper understanding of the person, the offices, the work of Jesus Christ. These are the elementary teachings of the Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10, verse 10 says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so through fire. So there, the apostle calls himself a wise master builder. A wise master builder, and the foundation that he laid is who? It is Jesus Christ. This is what he is preaching and teaching in the churches, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he's building upon this foundation and others are building upon that foundation. Some of the things that they lay on that foundation are described as gold, silver, and precious stones. These are pure, holy doctrines, pure, holy, righteous living, right? Growing into the faith of these people. Other things are wood, hay, and straw. Those things are going to be burned up in fire, and it is only those good things that will pass through the fire and be revealed there on the day of judgment. But there is only one foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Now here, this foundation is called the elementary teaching of the Christ. In Hebrews 5 verse 12, he called it the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And these truths are those things that are laid first. These truths bear the weight of the entire body of Christian truth and doctrine. Everything rests upon a proper knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2, he describes by way of summary, what are these elementary teachings? What are the elementary or uh, principles of the oracles of God that must be known and received and professed upon one's entry into salvation. Well, notice what he says: not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. The first elementary principle is repentance from dead works. Dead works are those deeds that come from the natural man the dead deeds of sin that come from the man of sin. In our natural state, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. And as a result of our spiritual deadness, what do we produce? We produce dead fruit, rotten fruit, right? These are dead works that come from us because in our natural state, we are enslaved to sin. And we must repent of these things in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19 to 21, describe the dead works. The dead works, or it gives a summary of what these dead works consist of. Not that this is an exhaustive list, because if it was exhaustive, it would require all the books in the world, right? To contain all of the ways that men commit sins against God. But it is sufficient for us to understand and know what he means by dead works. Galatians 5:19 to 21, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right, our calling to salvation must include repentance from these dead works. A man must come to a right understanding of his sinfulness, of the misery that he is under because of his dead works. He must reject these things in order to enter into the kingdom of God. We cannot be a Christian without repentance from dead works, without repentance for the forgiveness of sins, right? Just as he's mentioning these things, things like sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, immorality, drunkenness. Can someone be a drunken Christian? Can someone be an adulterous Christian, a homosexual Christian, a thieving Christian, an idolatrous Christian? Right? These are contradictions, right? One cannot cling and hold on to these sins and say, I'm going to be a Muslim Christian. I'm going to be both a Muslim and worship that God. And I'm also going to be a Christian at the same time. I'm gonna be a bank robbing Christian. I rob banks and this is how I make my living and I love it because I make a lot of money and I don't wanna give that up, but I also wanna be a Christian. So I'm gonna be a bank robber and a Christian at the same time. It's ridiculous, right, to even mention or say those things and this is what is necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance from dead works. The message of repentance is foundational. It is a elementary principle of the oracles of God. And the preaching of the prophets, of the apostles, of Jesus, of John the Baptist, if you summarize their teachings, it is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We can say with great authority and clarity, with great confidence, there is no salvation. There is no true preaching of the gospel that does not include repentance from dead works. And if we are not preaching repentance from dead works, we are not preaching like Jesus, the prophets, or the apostles. It must be a part of our Christian doctrine and of the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Also, it shows you why the church is in such a miserable state that it is in today. Because very rarely will you find churches that are preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. No one's preaching it. But how can there be salvation? if we don't have this elementary principle of the oracle of God. Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one, verses 14 to 15. Mark 1, 14. says, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here he's preaching the gospel of God. This is the gospel preached by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it is summarized with this summary The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is what Jesus was preaching and teaching throughout the course of his ministry. Also, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, 37 to 39. Here, this is on the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, after the death and resurrection and the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? So all of these things have been fulfilled, and notice what the apostles are preaching. Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Then also chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 24 to 26. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. What does it mean to turn from your wicked ways? Repent from dead works. This is what he's preaching there to the people. And then one last place, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 20 to 21, Acts twenty twenty-one. here the Apostle Paul gives a summary of his ministry. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is our sin, our dead works that have brought us into a state of sin and misery. We are under the wrath of God due to our sin. It was the transgression of Adam that brought the whole world into the state of chaos, confusion, death, and misery. Our sin, our dead works. This is what necessitated the coming of the Son of God into the world. This is why Jesus had to take on human flesh. This is why he was subjected to a life of hardships and sorrows. This is why he had to die on the cross, the cruel, shameful death on the cross, all because of our sin. Even the very context of what we're dealing with in Hebrews right now, that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why is it that Jesus is a high priest? And why do we even need a high priest to represent us before God? because of our sin it is our dead works that necessitates all of these things so how can the preaching of the gospel the gospel of salvation from sin not require that sinful men turn away from their sins one cannot live in open unrepentant sin and become a christian Entrance into Christianity requires an acknowledgement, a confession, and a rejection of dead works. And that's the first thing that he mentions here. The elementary teaching of Christ includes repentance from dead works. Second, the second foundational principle, he says, faith towards God. Faith. Faith. Isn't that what Jesus was preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. These are two sides of the same coin, and they describe what is the duty of man in hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to repent of our sin and believe in Christ. We cannot believe in Christ without repenting from sin, and we cannot repent from sin without at the same time believing in Christ. Here he describes this as faith towards God. Faith toward God is a trust, a confidence, an assurance that the salvation promised by God has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. When sin entered into the world, right? When man was brought into the state of corruption, into the state of condemnation and misery due to sin, God made a promise to Adam and Eve that he would raise up the seed of the woman, and that the seed of the woman would come and he would crush the head of the serpent. That what happened to the world and what happened to Adam and Eve because of the instigation and the lies of the devil, that God would raise up a seed from the woman who would come and bring an end to sin, to Satan, and to death. Genesis 3.15. This is considered by most good, well, I'll say most theologians then I'll say all good theologians, the first preaching of the gospel. The first declaration of the gospel in the Bible is Genesis 3.15 and the first promise of the Christ that would come into the world. And then the rest of the prophets are expanding and teaching and reiterating this promise over and over and over again. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The first promise of redemption was given here in Genesis 3.15, and then this promise was reiterated and expanded throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures. And the period of time from the giving of this promise to the fulfillment of that promise was a period of about 4,000 years of human history. From Adam until the coming of Christ, the people were waiting for God to fulfill his promise. The promise was given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that in their seed, right, in this singular descendant that would come from the patriarchs, God would accomplish this great salvation, reversing the results of the curse that was the result of the entrance of sin into the world through the deception of the serpent. This promise was also given to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. A singular descendant of David who would rise up from his flesh would sit on his throne and that God would give to him an eternal kingdom. And our faith towards God is our belief, our assurance, our firm confidence and conviction That all of these promises that God made to the fathers have all been fulfilled in one person, who is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That all the promises of God find their yes and they find their amen in who? In Christ. In Christ and in Christ alone. Not Christ and Muhammad, not Christ and Buddha, not Christ and any other God or any other person, not Christ and the Pope, not Christ and Mother Mary but Christ and Christ alone. Everything rests upon his person, his work for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the Christ. He is the one sent by God, provided by God, by which our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God. And there is no other mediator. We look to one mediator, to one savior only, to only the Christ who has been provided graciously by God for us. And this is our faith toward God. Our gratefulness and our assurance that what God has promised to do, he has fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And that the person and work of Christ is sufficient for the forgiveness of all of our sins. And if we put our hope and trust in him, that God will grant to us eternal life. Let's see this, Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, 67 to 80. This is the faith of Zechariah. We also sang from Luke chapter one this morning from Mary's song. She also speaks of the fulfillment of these promises, but we will read 67 to 80. Zacharias prophecy says, and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days." and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. There, Zacharias clearly believes that the Christ is coming into the world that God has fulfilled these promises and that the result of his entrance into the world is the forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of salvation that we might serve God in holiness without fear in righteousness all the days of our life. That God has indeed visited and redeemed his people by sending the Savior to come and to deliver us from all of our sins. What we could not do for ourselves by works of the law. Also Acts 13 Acts 13:26 13, to 39 also repeats this that what was promised has been accomplished and this is their faith towards God. It must be our faith as well. Acts 13:26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled the promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as he is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things for which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Freed from our dead works from our sins, from the condemnation of sin. We cannot be freed from that from the law of Moses because though the law of Moses shows the pathway of life, it does not give us the ability to keep it because of the corruption of sin. But in Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins, the freedom of those things, and we are set free from the bondage of iniquity. Faith toward God. This is an elementary teaching of the Christ. The third foundational principle, Here is instructions about washings and the laying on of hands. Now we're gonna treat these two things together though we could deal with them separately. And there is some disagreement amongst uh, interpreters as to what exactly he is referring to. But I think it's best to take this as a reference to a proper understanding of the washing of regeneration and a proper understanding of the imputation of sin. Our sin imputed to Christ. These things were taught by way of symbol and shadow in the Old Covenant through various washings, regulations concerning washings and regulations concerning the laying on of hands. There were many washings associated with the worship of the Old Testament. These washings were useless to actually remove sin from the people, right? Them bathing their bodies in water could not take away their sin. It was impossible for that to happen but they were useful in order to teach them of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. Well, now that the blood of Christ has been shed, because these Hebrew Christians are living on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that he has been shed, his blood has been poured out for us, these instructions about washings that are brought about through symbols, through types, are no longer necessary, they're no longer needed. It says in Hebrews 9, 9 to 10. Hebrews 9 verse 9 says, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Here, these instructions that are there in the law of Moses, that relate to food and drink and various washings. These things are unable to cleanse the conscience of the worshipers because they just deal with the removal of dirt from the body. And it cannot purify us from the dead works and the guilt in our conscience because of the knowledge of our sin. But what can purify our conscience? What can settle our conscience and cleanse them? The blood of Christ knowing that all of our sins have been forgiven and that we have been washed and made white as snow through the blood of Christ. This is an elementary principle of the oracles of God, an elementary teaching of Christ, that it is his blood that we are washed with that makes us whiter than snow, that his death is necessary for the washing away of our sins. Is that not a key article of the Christian faith? Only his blood can purify us and wash away all of our sins. And also the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands, I'm taking to refer to the imputation of sin. In the old covenant worship, the guilt of the sinner was transferred to the sacrifice symbolically by the laying on of their hands on the animal and the confessing of sin over that animal. And Christians have no need to be taught this great doctrine. That Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That our sin was imputed to Jesus. That he bore our iniquities. We have no need to be taught this by laying our hands on the head of some lamb or of some other animal. But rather, we know this is taught to us in Christian doctrine that our sin was imputed to Christ and the reason he died on the cross was not for his sins, but he bore the iniquity of his people. These are elementary principles of the oracles of God. The fourth foundational principle is resurrection of the dead. Without the understanding and belief in the resurrection of the dead, there is no Christianity, right? There is no gospel without the preaching of resurrection from the dead. This is critical to our understanding of salvation. The restoration of all things requires the resurrection of the body to immortal life. Our current bodies are subject to decay. They are subject to corruption, right? They are still subjected to the effects of the curse and the entrance of sin into the world. And what is it that will transform our lowly bodies into a glorious body? It is the power of God in resurrection. When he raises us from the dead, just as the spirit raised Jesus from the dead and his body was transformed from the lowly body that he took on in his incarnation to the glorious body that he now possesses in heaven. So also we, his people, our body will be put away. Our body will be put into the ground and it will raise to an immortal life to a resurrected, glorious body, a spiritual body that is fit for the kingdom of God. And if there is no resurrection, then what are we doing here, right? We should just all go home and have a good time, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we will die. And don't take my word for that. That's what the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19, the Apostle Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then why are we doing any of this, right? There's no point in us even preaching the gospel because there's no salvation, there's no eternal life without the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify that God has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection of Christ, then we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. That means that his death was not sufficient to take away our sin because the grave still has mastery over him. The proof that Christ's death that his sacrifice was sufficient to atone for our sin, is that God raised him from the dead. He would not let his Holy One see corruption. And it is his resurrection that proves and manifests that God has been satisfied that he has quenched the wrath of God on our behalf and that our salvation is secure in him. Any denial of the bodily resurrection, this is rank heresy. It is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ It shipwrecks the whole Christian faith. How can there be a day of judgment without the resurrection of the body? Future rewards, future punishments require the resurrection of the body. Shall the souls of the wicked be tormented when many of their sins were committed with their bodies? Shall the bodies of the righteous be unrewarded when so many of their sufferings were born in their bodies? Especially when we consider the martyrs, who suffered such torments in their physical bodies. Yet shall their bodies not receive a reward for what they suffered? And yet this heresy has persisted for many years. This was the chief heresy of the Sadducees, the teachers of the Jews, a point of great contention between them and the apostles that they denied the resurrection of the dead. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Acts 4, verse 1 says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were very upset, greatly disturbed that they were preaching resurrection to the people. And also we know from Acts 23 verse six that the reason the apostle Paul was on trial he says, was for his hope and the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of both the just and the unjust is a chief article of the Christian faith, that God will do this, and we must believe it. And a person must believe this in order for them to even be saved. They must believe this elementary teaching of Christ. Then lastly, by way of foundational principle, eternal judgment, eternal judgment. We must believe that there is a day of judgment when Christ will judge the world in righteousness and where the eternal destiny of all men will be determined. The righteous will enter into the kingdom of Christ where they will experience eternal joy, eternal bliss in the presence of the Lord. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering, no more death, no more devil, no more world, no more flesh. The former things will be done away with. All those things will be removed. All of the miseries of sin will be taken away, and it will be perfect peace and happiness with the Lord for all eternity. The wicked, on the other hand, will be assigned to eternal punishment, where they will experience in both body and soul eternal death as the just punishment for their sins. They will be cast into the lake of fire where they will experience eternal, never-ending torment and suffering as they experience the fierce wrath of God poured out upon them because of their sin. Eternal judgment, which means we have to believe in heaven and hell, that there is a place for the saints and there is a place for the sinners. Eternal judgment and an eternal place for both and that there is indeed a day of judgment coming upon the world. Hebrews 9:27 says, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2.16, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He says there, according to my gospel... According to the gospel as preached by the Apostle Paul, central or a key part of that gospel he preached was that Christ Jesus would judge the secrets of men, that there is indeed a day of judgment and Jesus Christ is the one who will judge the world in righteousness. Without a right orthodox biblical understanding of eternal judgment, there can be no true understanding of salvation or of the gospel. So these are the elementary teachings about Christ repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instructions about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. One cannot be a Christian without having some understanding, a sufficient understanding of these truths. The Hebrew Christians, they have been taught these things. They have believed them, right? They have believed them, they've been trained in these things. The apostle has laid a good foundation among them but now they've become unsettled. They're wavering. They're having doubts on these points of doctrine. They're not being consistent in their faith and in their practice that they have fully incorporated these into their life. They're not strong in these areas, but they are weak. They're like infants or children who need to be strengthened in these areas. And what is the reason for this? According to chapter five, verse 11, they're dull of hearing. It is their own sin and their own dullness that is keeping them from being settled on these points. They have heard these things taught. They have a very good teacher in the apostle. He has faithfully, accurately taught these doctrines, but they are not incorporating them into their faith and practice. And this is why he is stirring them up by way of reminder, encouraging them to press on to maturity, to build up their faith and their understanding of the gospel on these foundational principles that they have learned and have believed in some measure. Then, verse 3. Notice he ends here by saying, in terms of pressing on to maturity, this we will do if God permits. In both regards, it all depends upon the will of God, both as a teacher and as the hearer. He will teach them greater truths, And they will understand these truths, but all contingent on the will of God. If God permits it, then this is what will happen. He reminds them here that while they are responsible, while it is their duty to press on to maturity, we all have the responsibility to grow in our faith. This is a commandment from God, a commandment in Scripture, We have that responsibility to do that, to grow. It is my responsibility as a pastor teacher to establish you in the faith, to bring you to maturity in these things. Yet all of it, whether coming from me or coming from you, is contingent on the will of God. We will arrive at maturity only if God permits. Now, this in no way excuses the immaturity of men. We cannot say... That, well, I want to grow and I want to be mature, but God hasn't permitted it. And there are some people who think and reason in this way. And when they do that, who are they blaming for their own sin? They're blaming God for their sin because they're saying that they're willing and they want to grow and they have the desire, but God is unwilling to give it to them. This is, this is blasphemy, right, to say such things, and we should never utter such things. If there is a failure, where does the failure always lie? It always lies in men. We can never say that God made me sin or that God made me do it. We are always at fault and we alone bear our blame. This dullness of hearing is rising from their own flesh and from our own sin. However, at the same time, if there is any progress in the Christian life, if there is any maturity, if there is any growth, whatever measure of faith and sanctification we attain to in this life, it is always a result of, of the power of God and the work of God within us. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Only by the grace of God. Our salvation from start to finish, whether we're talking about our new birth or whether we're talking about our growth in the Christian life, all of it must come from the Lord. He must work in us. He is the one who began the work of salvation, He's the one that progresses the work of salvation. He is the one who brings it to completion. We must depend upon him for all things. For Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So there is this twofold need then, always within us in our sanctification. To set before us what is our responsibility and to strive, to rouse ourselves to do everything that we can to bring that about, to work diligently and faithfully attend to the things that God has given for our growth in the Christian life. But at the same time, we must always be humble and completely dependent on the Lord and always praying for God to increase our faith, for God to cause us to grow, for God to give us more maturity and completely reliant upon him. And this is the way that we must approach the Christian life. And this we will do if God permits. So let us pray and pray that God would permit us to do such things. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and, Lord, how it so clearly instructs us, Lord, in the way of righteousness so that we are without excuse. Lord, none of us can ever say that you fail to sufficiently accurately teach us what you require of us. And, Lord, here we see that what you desire and what you expect of all of your people is that we would grow in maturity, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would press on from a state of infancy and childhood into a state of maturity, that these elementary principles of Christ, Lord, those things that we first believed when we understood the gospel, that when this foundation is laid, that it would just be the beginning of our Christian life and that we would continually build upon that foundation year after year after year until the whole building is built up and until we reach this state of maturity in our Christian faith. Lord, we know that this is our responsibility and that we are called to do so. And Father, we pray that you forgive us for so often Lord, we are very sluggish. We, we grow weary. We are hindered. We have many things that are keeping us, Lord, our own sin and our worldliness. Lord, living according to our desires and our emotions instead of doing the things that we know that we ought to do. Lord, we know that our spirit is indeed willing, but it is our flesh that is so weak. And so we pray, Father, that you forgive us for being sluggish and for making, Lord, the advancements that we ought to be making in our Christian life. And Lord, we pray that you would give us your strength. Lord, we need your power. We see, Lord, that it is our responsibility and we wanna be faithful to you. Yet at the same time, Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. That if your spirit does not take your word and apply it into our lives, Lord, we will make, make no advancement in the Christian life. And so, Father, we pray that what you require of us, you would graciously give, and that even today, Lord, you might build us up in our faith, and that you would cause the word that we have heard to be received into our heart with meekness, and that it would bear much fruit in our life, so that we would no longer be as children who are tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine, but that we might be strong and stable in our faith. Lord, so that we are not susceptible to the many lies of the devil, but rather we're able to combat those things, Lord, so that we would grow in our holiness and in our godliness before you. And Lord, that we might be useful to our fellow man, Lord, a benefit to our families, seeing that if we are mature in our faith, we will be able to instruct our wives and our children. And Lord, that we might be useful to those in the church, especially to those who are young in the faith and who are weak, Lord, knowing that in your body, there will always be a mixture, Lord, of those who are strong and those who are weak. And yet, Father, we see that in your word, Christ gives special attention to those who are weak, to those who are with young, that his eye is toward them in a special way, and he has love and care and compassion toward them. Lord, may we have that same compassion, Lord, in the body, and especially those who are strong. Lord, may they bear with those who are weak, and they, Lord, may they with gentleness and tenderness and kindness help them, Lord, and bring them along so that all of us, Lord, will arrive to maturity in our faith. So, Lord, help us in these things, and we pray that you build up this body and that we would be known, Lord, for our maturity, for our understanding of the gospel, our ability to defend and to answer, Lord, those who ask us to give a reason for the hope that is within us, Lord, may we be known for our godliness as well and as well for our love and our compassion toward your people. So Lord, bless us today. Lord, give to us all that you require. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.